This is a recording from the University of Virginia's Engaging the Mind program, brought to you by the Lifelong Learning Program in the Office of Engagement. On March 21, 2013, Rosalind Byrne of the School of Engineering and Applied Sciences addressed a crowd at the Virginia Festival of the Book on the topic, Our Future, One Planet, Tangled in Technology, with Liberty and Justice, for Whom? Byrne is introduced by Professor Catherine Neely, an associate professor in the Department of Engineering and Society at UVA. In the world that we inhabit, science fiction plays a very serious role. It is not always easy, or even possible perhaps, to predict what the future might be, but we can project. And in science fiction, we have the opportunity to see possibilities and evaluate whether we would find them desirable. Really good science fiction is often quite disturbing. And those of you who have read Waiting in Silence know that it has that, that, it has that quality. You will see in a minute when you meet Rosalind that if you've read the book, that appearances are deceiving. I have known her for a long time. She's quite the gentlewoman, and I never would have thought she had this in her imagination. Uh, but it is compelling, it is thought-provoking, and it is also, uh, I think, very entertaining. So just a little more information about her. Rosalind earned her Ph.D. in Religious Studies at UVA with a focus on bioethics. Uh, she teaches courses on science, technology, and contemporary issues, engineering and Western culture, as well as courses in technology and human reproduction. Uh, she is the recipient of a National Science Foundation Career Award, which is a really big deal. Not very many people get those. Uh, for five years, that supported her research on ethics in nanotechnology development. She's particularly interested in the role and function of moral imagination, personal belief, and mythology and metaphor in the pursuit of technological development. And it is a very great pleasure for me to introduce her to you tonight. Ooh, it happened, we're here. I'm very happy to be with you tonight. I want to indulge, uh, ask you to indulge me two brief requests. The first one is, if you have a little black box like this, would you hold it up? I want to see how many of us in this room have our little black boxes with us. And there's a reason I'm asking. You might have to reach for it, but so far it's about a third of us. I'm surprised. Oh, now it's half. Uh-huh. Uh, there it is. Okay. I assume it's on vibrate or silent, but that's not why I asked you. I'll get to that later. The other indulgence is what I ask my students to do at the beginning of every class. And uh, there's also a method behind my madness for this. I'm going to ask you to sit with me just for one minute of um, inward focus and to just follow my lead for a moment as I ask you to become aware of this space and this time. Just simply notice where you are. What you hear, what you see, what you feel. And then to focus on your own breath 
and to simply become aware of that. The nature of its flow, its rhythm, and how you receive it as it moves into your body and how you release it as it leaves. And then awareness of the seat in which you're sitting and the weight of your body held in that seat. And then to us gathered here at this moment. Thank you. First thing I'd like to do is tell you about a historian named Thomas Hughes. And all I'm going to say is that, uh, for now, he defines technology as craftsmen, mechanics, inventors, engineers, designers, and scientists using tools, machines, and knowledge to create and control a human-built world. So our mindfulness now is to be aware of and have gratitude for the technologies that support our lives and the great minds behind their creations. You got here probably in an automobile. You held up a black box that connects you and helps you to communicate. Many of us probably have replaced joints, hips and knees, pacemakers and hearing aids, I have plastic on my pupils that makes it so that instead of being a Monet painting with random brushes, you're actually in focus. Our clothing, access to potable water, the fact that we can flush a toilet and our waste goes away and is treated, the fact that we don't have big piles of garbage on the street, but it's collected and sorted and put out of our sight, hot water for our bathing. In this room, the electricity for the lights, the speaker system that projects my voice, the windows that keep in the controlled air, the plaster, the curtains. And even though the floors were made by nature, <laughs> It took human hands and machines to get them into this shape so that they could be laid for us to walk on. And so it's really everywhere, this human-built world. Now, one of the things that's here tonight that's because of technology is PowerPoint. <laughs> and what I want to say about PowerPoint is that I came to this room early this week just to check it out and see what was here. And when I saw there was a big screen and a projector, I thought, yeah, I can use PowerPoint. I spent about 11 hours obsessing, surfing the net and finding just the right images. And finally, because my host wanted it by yesterday, I pressed the send button 
with like 30 of the coolest images. But of course, I had to get the font right and get the color right and get the layout right so it would be just the right presentation for you. And then I went to sleep thinking, huh, okay, that's done. Thank goodness for PowerPoint. And then at 5 a.m., I sat up in the dark and I thought, something's wrong. Something's wrong. So I went into my meditation room and I sat there and I sat there, what? Something's wrong. I'm not ready at all. And it took me a while and then I realized that I had been driven by the technology. I had been pushed by the machine. And in the process, I'd forgotten that we would be here, human beings, together, for a particular purpose that had something to do with a message that I want to bring to you that's not in the internet, but it's inside of my mind and my heart. And I had to remember what that was and then go and take a pencil and a paper, early technology, and scribble some notes. And then I felt like, oh, now it's done. I have a story about um, when I was working at Tandem as the head of school. We didn't have many computers at the time. There was a computer lab, and there were maybe five. And so to get on a computer, you had to go to the lab. And then some board members suggested that that was archaic, and we needed to have computers in every classroom, and all the teachers needed computers. And in addition, we needed to stop answering the phone with a human voice and get a system. And I said, no, 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 please. It was like a tsunami was coming, and I was standing on the shore with my little hands. I was not going to stop it. I was at Darden um, when they got their first computers. And before they got their computers, they had a tradition that they called walking the halls. It's how you got business done. You actually went to see people. And they also had a tradition of morning coffee at 9.25 every day. Everybody left their office and came for coffee. You know the rest of the story. It was just a matter of time. Now, what I'm concerned about are our entanglements with all the gratitude that I have for the technology that makes our lives possible. I'm a little concerned about the entanglements that lead us to forget sometimes some of our basic capacities and our purposes. So what about you? Do you have any entanglements? I don't think I could leave the house without this anymore. And I didn't even want one originally. How much technology do we need? Thomas Hughes talks about technological momentum and suggests that we have little choice in the technologies that unfold before us. That once they get started... Once they start moving, they become so deeply entrenched in the culture and the society that we're no longer conscious of them, and we no longer have choices. I'm going to tell you a personal story. And um, don't be sad, because I'm not sad, but I'm going to tell you the story. Uh, I was 38 weeks gestation and, uh, with pregnancy, and I had a dream. It was a disturbing dream. So I went to my obstetrician and I said to him, I think we better do an internal exam. Something's wrong. And he said, don't be concerned. There's nothing wrong. And I said, um, please. 
So long story short, there was something very wrong. And it was a diagnosis called anencephaly, which means no brain had developed in my daughter. So I went right away to the hospital ethics committee and said, could you donate her organs? Could we donate? Because she's going to die. And one of the physicians at the committee yelled at me, why didn't you get an AFP test, which is alpha fetoprotein, which you can measure in the blood to determine whether there's a neural tube defect? Well, at the time, they had 50% false positives, and I knew this. I had done my research, and I said, because what was I supposed to do with the information? The technology was going to tell me what was possible, but at a 50% rate of being wrong. What was I supposed to do with the knowledge? So sometimes, just because we can get access to information doesn't mean we should or that we know what to do with that access to the information. Now, what happened was I went into the delivery process, and because we didn't really know what we were doing, and this was a very unusual birth, she got stuck behind the pelvic bone and couldn't come out. And the doctor said, you have to do this on your own. I can't help you anymore. It was too late for a cesarean. So, you know, I tend to go to prayer because that's all I need to know to do sometimes. And meanwhile, I had this thing, and I, I felt that she was going to be born at 312. Well, she wasn't. She, she wasn't. But three days later, after she was on life support and had tubes and all kinds of things going on to try to keep her alive so her organs could be donated, she died at 312. Now, I don't know what that means, but one of the things I learned is that we have to sometimes combine our technology with our own inner knowledge, that maybe that's the way we can live in this human-built world and still retain some of the fundamental knowledge of our humanity. The doctor came actually and apologized to me the next day and said, I didn't anticipate it and I'm sorry. And that's all I needed because it was a human being talking to another human being. I didn't need the machines. I just needed to know he was with me. I want to talk to you about um, when I was teaching um, STS, I don't know, eight years ago, one of my students was sitting in class early and he had a book in his hand. And I noticed the title and it was called The Age of Spiritual Machines by Ray Kurzweil. I said, that's a really bizarre title. What are you reading there? And I found out that Kurzweil uh, is an inventor and... Um, an entrepreneur, and he actually created Kurzweil Music Systems, uh, which developed synthesizers with high-quality emulation of real instruments and optical character recognition and image scanning technology and reading for the blind technology. Brilliant man. He believes that humans will one day create machines more intelligent than we are. He argues that the computational capacity of computers is increasing exponentially. He says nanotechnology will augment our bodies and cure cancer even as humans connect to computers via direct neural interfaces or live full-time in virtual reality. Kurzweil predicts the machines will appear to have their own free will and even spiritual experiences. He says humans will essentially live forever as humanity and its machinery become one and the same. He predicts that intelligence will expand outward from Earth until it grows powerful enough to influence the fate of the universe. I thought that was weird. <laughs> I wanted to understand that. So I applied for an NSF grant, and it allowed me to spend five years talking with scientists whose research is at the nanoscale of matter. And I asked them, what is this? What are we going to be able to do with this? 
The convergence of nanotechnology with biotech, infotech, neurocognitive sciences opens up to us whole new worlds of novel, novel technological capacities. Growing consensus of opinion says that separately or together, these fields of research and development will inevitably lead to hybridized humans in the sense that they will blend our biology with technology at the molecular level. I found that overwhelming, exciting, and frightening. During the fifth year of my research, I was in New York City interviewing scientists at Columbia and NYU. And I, at the end of the day, I went to the hotel, had dinner, called it a day, went to sleep. Within about an hour, I was wide awake, completely wide awake. And at the time, I was not a TV watcher, and I didn't know what to do with myself. I sat there for a while. Finally, I turned on the light, picked up a pen, and I started writing. And it wasn't a willful writing. It just started happening. And I wrote till dawn. And then I thought, oh, my goodness, I have interviews today. So I stuffed it in my bag and got dressed and got up and went back to Columbia. And about a few months later... I pulled the, the papers out of my bag, and lo and behold, it was a short story set in Nantucket in the future. And it featured a character named Ariana. And I want to tell you about her when I read the book, but before that, I have some slides to show you. I have to check time first, huh? Okay. Okay. All right. <laughs> We're going to go through these slides sort of quickly. These are, these are just to set the tone for you so you understand that I didn't just make this stuff up that's in my book. I extrapolated from current research, from current technology. So I'm going to give you a, just a quick run through of about 20 things that I saw yesterday. All right. So the first one, well, you recognize that. We, we almost all are attached to that now. Go ahead, please. This is a bionic eye. We're now at the point that for many people we can restore vision. And we can also give an eye that enhances what we see. Next, please. You recognize this. This is why I don't like to travel anymore. <laughs> and the next, if you go and have pizza downtown on the mall at Christian's, I can watch you from the webcam that's mounted at the hook across the street, real time. I might not see the pepperoni, but I know you're there. The reason why I pulled this image is because it was connected to a website where the discussion was between a priest and some physicians about whether it would be possible to do baptism in utero. The next one is called Hand of Hope. This is a uterus that's been lifted from a pregnant woman's body so that the surgeon could work on a baby who has spina bifida. And the physician is holding the baby's hand. The next one is a goat that never was in utero in its mother's body. It is in utero in a tank. The researchers who are working on exouterine or artificial uterus research hope that one day we won't need the human body. Next one. This is a cryonics lab. Cryonics meaning deep freeze. A lot of people, including Walt Disney, are frozen because they're hoping that we will have the technology to revive them at some day. So the first thing they do is they, they remove the blood and they, they replace it with um, a particular kind of liquid that helps the freezing process. And the next slide shows you where the bodies are stored. There are hundreds of them now. And this, this is in, uh, right outside of Phoenix. You too can be frozen in wait. It's expensive, though. 
Um, so you might recognize uh, the Olympian Oscar Pistorius, who now runs faster than humans because he has prosthetics that have been designed to help him as a racer. The next one uh, is also a bionic prosthetics that's connected neurologically and to the muscle so that um, there's a sense of feeling and a lot of range of movement that mimics what the human shoulder can do. The next one is, uh, actually those are artificial cells and they're made of metal. And Lee Cronin of the University of Glasgow has created those cells and says that the discovery opens the possibility that there may be life forms in the universe not based on carbon. He hints that metal-based cells may be replicating themselves and, re and evolving, the ones in his lab, replicating themselves and evolving. Quote, I am 100% positive that we can get evolution to work outside of organic biology. The next slide. Um, this is the Da Vinci surgical system. Many people now are able to have surgery performed by robots. Robotic surgery promises to reduce costs, mostly due to shorter anesthesia, less blood loss, smaller wounds, and ultimately shorter hospital stays. And then there's always the possibility of totally remote robot surgery, which promises to save lives in remote communities, war zones, disaster-stricken areas, or simply allowing you to be operated by the surgeon of your choice without the need to fly around the globe. The next slide I'm going to come back to. It's a surprise at the end, and that's true for the next two after this. We're going to get to that at the end. Uh, next one, please. And, um, of course, you're probably familiar with the fact that now with the joystick world, a U.S. soldier um, doesn't have to face directly warfare, doesn't have to see the results of bombs. And that's because with the next slide, remotely powered drones can drop bombs from hundreds of miles away and you just have to be behind a computer screen and work your stick. The next slide is an image of Jacques Huyol. He is a French philosopher, lawyer, and lay theologian whose constant theme was one of technological tyranny over humanity. For Huyol, that which describes a given reality itself in turn becomes the new sacred reality. The sacred object of both hope and fear, fascination and dread, where nature was once all encompassing environment and, and a power upon which humans were dependent in life and death, has now been shifted. And he argues that we had experiences that we called sacred connected to our sense of connection to nature. But now, actually, you'll wrote this in the 40s, it's technological society that we hold sacred. This was his sense of where we were then. I wonder what he would think about where we are now. He said, modern technology has become a total phenomenon for civilization, the defining force of a new social order in which efficiency is no longer an option, but a necessity imposed on all human activity. According to Ayul, technology is progressively effacing the two previous environments, nature and society. He argued that we can't live without our gadgets. At the same time, we are put at risk by our technology and its hazardous consequences. And he feels that not only are we surrounded by it, but our primary means of communicating now are mediated by technology. Instead of technology being subservient to humanity, for a Yule, humans have had to adapt to it 
and to accept total change. He asks 76 reasonable questions about technology, his words, 76 reasonable questions about technology. I'm not going to read 76 questions to you, but I'm going to read about 12 or 13. And as I read them, think about your black box. Does it serve community? How does it affect our perceptions of our needs? What are its effects on relationships? Who does it benefit? What is its purpose? Where must it go when it's broken or obsolete? What is lost in using it? What are its effects on the least advantage in society? How does it affect the quality of life as distinct from the standard of living? Does it reduce, deaden, or enhance human creativity? Does it replace or does it aid human hands and human beings? Does it depress or enhance the meaning of work? What aspect of the inner self does it reflect? Does it express love? Does it express rage? How complicated is it? What does it allow us to ignore? To what extent does it distance the agent from the effect? Can we assume personal or communal responsibility for its effects? Can its effects be directly apprehended? What are its effects on the health of the planet and the person? Does it preserve or destroy biodiversity? Does it preserve or reduce ecosystem integrity? What are its effects on the land, on wildlife? How much and what kind of waste does it generate? Does it concentrate or equalize power? Does it require or institute a knowledge elite? Does it require a bureaucracy for its per uh, perpetuation? Does it undermine traditional moral authority? How does it affect warfare? What kind of capital does it require? What noise does it make? What pace does it set? I'm reading to you from um, a chapter called Verdict in uh, Waiting in the Silence. You can go to the last slide and leave that if, if you want, mind. Two days ago, I gave a, uh, a lecture on solid waste in our pretty serious challenge on what we're going to do about our solid waste and how much we make, and uh, particularly on the ocean currents that are collecting um, a lot of plastic, like about two swirling islands about the size of Texas that are collecting our plastic. Much of it is this. And the worst part of it is actually the cap, which is made of a different plastic and doesn't biodegrade in the sun. And Albatross that fly out of the Galapagos are now found with pounds of plastic in their guts. So I thought about Yule's questions. And uh, it's difficult to answer those questions and not change one's life. So what I find is that many of us just continue on because it's too hard to look too deeply at our entanglements. I think I wrote this, awoken from a sleep, because I was a little overwhelmed with what I was learning from all those scientists, and I didn't know what to do with it. So this is three quarters of the way into the book. Oriana is the main character. Um, she lives in the near-term future, I would say, maybe 50 years from now on the island of Nantucket that has been... Um, ravaged by the climate change's storms. And, you know, we didn't have any of those major storms when I wrote that. 
I, the first draft of this was done five years ago. It took me years to get it to the form it is now. But so when the storms came this year, I thought, oh my, oh my. <laughs> Straight ahead, Oriana, keep going, the bot commands. Oriana looks up into the V-shaped sensors that serve as the ears and eyes of the machine looming over her. How has it come to this? She never experienced things would go this far wrong. Back off of me, you imbecile, she hisses at the six foot three inches tall human replica that hovers too close for comfort. Keep going, Oriana, it instructs, pushing her toward the double doors leading into the court for obstetrical compliance. Oriana imagines shoving the thing aside as she steps at a defiantly slow pace. What am I doing here? The bot, fo bot follows close at her heels, its stride clumsy and ungraceful. It shoves a sharp digit between two vertebrae in her neck. Oriana shrieks, her voice echoing against the white paneled walls of the nearly empty room. The air outside is bitter and gray clouds hang dense and low. Most islanders are home watching the hearing from under their hoods. Oriana passes row after row of empty chairs. Sit here, the bot demands as she reaches the row directly in front of the judge's dais. Stopping to attend to an itch on the bottom of her foot, she slips off of her left shoe and her right, um, with her right toenail scratches the irritated spot. She takes a seat at the end of an empty row. On her shoulder hangs the bag she inherited from her grandmother, which granddad gave her when she was mated. She reaches inside, finding a shawl that Mrs. Wyatt has given her as a gift. Taking it in her hand, she drapes it across her shoulders and over her head. Where the hell is Connor, she says. The bot pats her head with its long digits. No talking, it replies, pressing into her scalp, almost hard enough to break the skin. Oriana fights back tears. She turns her head and sees a few familiar faces. Grandad, she cries out. All rise, bellows a disembodied voice reverberating through the tiny speakers spread invisibly throughout the ceiling and walls. Oriana stands. Connor slips in through the courtroom doors, his eyes darting around the room. She turns, smiling hopefully at him, and his blue eyes make direct contact. Scowling, he looks away. The Honorable Judge Faraday presiding, declares the disembodied voice. Oriana grimaces, slipping her fingers under the shawl and rubbing her temples gently. These days, the piercing pain is almost always present. The judge takes a seat at the dais and places her hands on the smooth surface of the command panel in front of her. Its colorful transmission lights illuminate her face, the restored skin clear, tight, and the color of cream, and accentuated with a hint of blush pink dyed into her cheeks. Plump lips, long brown eyelashes, and cat-like eyes tinted gray give the judge an alluring charisma in spite of her years. Vishnu has provided generously for her old age, Islanders say. Be seated, Faraday says blankly, covering a yawn with her hand. Connor slips into an empty chair on the far side of Oriana's row. Technomedic to the bench, Faraday commands as she removes a piece of grime from under her fingernail. Carrying a small black box, the medic moves to the front of the courtroom and waits for further instructions. Faraday looks out over the near-empty courtroom. Let's see if we can wrap this up quickly and get out of here sooner rather than later, she says. She fought, smiles forgivingly at Grandad, who is slumped over and snoozing in a chair near the rear. Before making my opening remarks, she says, I call Lily Ashpashman to the bench. Our island Wampanoag descendant has been invited here to conduct a traditional opening. The 
public hearing process on Nantucket incorporates protocols and customs that are largely based on Anglo-American heritage. By adding a traditional opening, the community acknowledges the importance and historic significance of the Wampanoag people who were the first to call the island their home many hundreds of years ago. Oriana finds it patronizing custom, belonging as it does to a people who have all but disappeared. Thank you, Judge Faraday, Lily replies as she takes her place at the front of the courtroom. Like nearly everyone else on the island, Lily is Vishnu connected. Her youthful appearance, glowing eyes, and shimmering palms give that away. Around here, connection is considered a profound privilege and a source of island pride. With arms raised upward, Lily opens her hands towards the ceiling as if reaching for the sky. Let us give thanks for the dawn of this new day, for the foundry which supports us, and for Vishnu which sustains us, and let us be thankful for the wisdom of this honorable judge. Lily's straight brown hair falls across her face as she moves her head for emphasis. Her bracelets tinkle as she clasps her hands together. The side door of the courtroom opens and then closes, catching Oriana's attention. A man enters and stands against the back wall. He wears a simple black cap and a long, dark coat and nods slightly at Oriana. She returns a tentative nod to the stranger. Distracted by the man, Oriana doesn't respond when the judge beckons her. Oriana, come forward, please. Faraday says with a tap of her fingers on the dice. Who is he? I am summoning you to the bench, Oriana, the judge repeats. Why doesn't he just use his hood? I mean now, Oriana. Oriana, startled, turns her attention to the front of the courtroom. So sorry, Judge Faraday. Are you calling for me? Yes, young lady, I'm asking you to approach the bench. Oriana steps away from her chair. The security bot glides behind her as Oriana takes her place in the front of the judge's dice. Faraday lifts an eyebrow, rolls her eyes, and proceeds. Obviously, you folks know why we are all here today. Oriana sighs and presses her hands on her aching back, rubbing on both sides of her spine. It dawns on her that Judge Faraday might give Connor full custody of the fetus or sentence her to time in the facility. A sudden feeling of terror comes over her. She spreads her fingers and covers her abdomen with her hands. The judge continues. Aside from the deception and broken trust you have inflicted on your mate, which are not so much illegal as they are an affront to our community, you allowed yourself to be impregnated outside of standard protocols, which puts you and your child at risk for random, uncontrolled genomic characteristics. Faraday perches her chin on her palm. Oriana continues holding her belly. Tell me, Oriana, what were you thinking, the judge asks. Why would you ever want to be impregnated at such risk? A sneeze rips through Oriana's lips. She should have covered her mouth. The judge's fingers move quickly across the dice. The lights on the control panel flicker and the microorganism vacuum drops from the ceiling, spreading its tentacles around Oriana's head and chest. Its suction absorbs the spewed droplets and almost as quickly it retracts. Oh, come on now, Oriana rants, running her hand through her hair to neaten the must by the vacuum. What the hell? It's not as if I'm contagious. If I was harboring germs, I'd not have gotten through those courtroom doors. She points behind her at the entryway for emphasis. Faraday continues to diatribe. Secondly, you refuse the monitoring and interventions that assure optimal development of the fetus. Oriana curls her lips in disgust. And thirdly, the most egregious of your misdeeds, Ms. Oriana Roach, was the theft of impounded eggs as well as of of Connor's sperm. You stole genetic material. With that, Faraday folds her hands behind her heads. I didn't steal anything, Oriana retorts. I beg your pardon, Faraday says. Please, Your Honor. 
Oriana returns. There's been a big mistake. Faraday leans back in her chair. Well, somehow a gestating fertilized ovum is nearly fully grown in your womb. It apparently didn't get there through the standard clinical procedures. Oriana, who besides you could have done that? Oriana hunches her shoulders in a gesture of innocence. You tell me because I have no idea how I can be pregnant. All of my eggs were extracted. Exactly the point, Faraday returns. And you have also removed the gamete suppository placed in your uterus by Dr. Chung. This leaves us with only one plausible explanation. Theft. I need not say it again. I'm aware of time, so I stopped. Okay. So we, we have time for questions, and I've got one that I wanted to start with. I felt, as I read this book by the time that I finished reading it, that I had in some ways been changed by the experience of reading it. And I really, really would like to know the ways in which you felt that you were changed by writing it. Problem with asking a colleague in my department to moderate is I'm going to get a tough question. <laughs> I probably was changed in writing it. Um, every time I read the ending, I cry, even though I know what's going to happen. I think that in the end, I realized that I don't have answers to these questions. Whereas I thought maybe in the beginning I might be able to um, present some answers in the process. By the end, I really didn't have any. And I think that the um, humility of accepting that the technological momentum is real and that there's a lot that is now still in our control but even more that's not was sobering to me. So I think I end up just sort of um, taking every day and looking for those human connections and being grateful for those. Thank you okay. for that question. Oh, sure. Well, thank you for your answer. Yes, and I'll repeat the question to be sure that everybody can hear it. Yes. I've read both of your books, and uh, of course I had to have an imagination to understand the nanonado. <laughs> uh, my question is, why don't we consider the second law of thermodynamics as sacred? Okay, so the question is, in short, uh, why we do not consider the second law of thermodynamics sacred. And I know that you have a science background. Would you like to explain to the audience your interpretation of that law? It's the fundamental physical chemistry of the universe. Yes. And it's anticipating the end of civilization, the collapse of complex societies that's taking place in Washington, London, New Delhi, Berlin. So let me say that what I learned from talking to very well-meaning, very intelligent scientists is that there's a certain kind of satisfaction that comes with being able to control and manipulate matter with precision. It's enticing. And it speaks to our curiosity, but also our desire to feel some control and power 
over what I think is otherwise out of our control. But the belief that it's within our hands, and in fact, look at what we've done, continues to invite us to go past what we think our, our knowledge tells us about those laws. And of course you know that what we thought were truisms about the physical universe are no longer held that way. The new physics is an example with quantum theory about the way Adam's behavior behaves, unlike anything we thought was possible in the past. So we keep going because it seems to be in our nature to see what's possible at our hands. You know, but thinking about the book, what's mm. interesting about the question, the second law, I think, is suggests that we, everything becomes increasingly disordered, mm-hmm. more chaotic over time, is that the world that is depicted in your book, at least to me, could be very easily described as a world where there's too much order rather than not enough. Because of what's, okay, that's really interesting. Uh, People in this world have elected to connect to an intelligent system because that allows them radical life extension and enhancement of their otherwise limited human faculties. So I would put the question back, what what would we be willing to exchange for a sense of greater control and well-being, for the, for the sense of um, much, much extended life. What would we be willing to give up? And what you see there is what, in fact, we traded. And I would give you an example. You saw the projections of what is seen when we go through the TSA. Um, we gave something up when we agreed, collectively, to stand in those and expose ourselves. Think about it. We gave something up because we were willing to trade a sense of security for our privacy. We're constantly making trades as we develop new technologies. What did we give up when we went to drone warfare? What did we trade? Okay, thank you. Other questions? Yes. The point is that Facebook has become the primary mode of communication and connection with the next generation of young people, and for actually many people. Uh, it's a worldwide phenomenon. And this woman is saying that her connection with her children has been minimized because she will not get a Facebook account, and that's the way they want to communicate with her. Um, each generation adapts to the technologies that come forward. Um, we adapted to telephones, <laughs> right? And um, it, we adapted to, to cable television. In fact, I had a black and white with only three channels. <laughs> and so each new evolution of technological development you know, changes the way people define communication and connection. And they're of, a, they're of a generation where this medium is the primary and they celebrate it because they can connect widely and rapidly and instantly all over the world and it feels rather limitless. And so most of them are excited about it. Now I happen to have a daughter who got off because she realized, wait a minute, something doesn't feel right. But in doing that, you make a choice to disconnect with a very fast moving collective consciousness. So it's a choice you've made, but it's where they've gone. And some people wonder if actually the brain is 
forming different kinds of patterns, if it's actually changing its contours and shapes. And I, we have at least one person in this audience that studies such things and, and is aware of the functioning of the brain. And I, I wonder whether the medium themselves are changing the nature of the neurological system because we may be engaging different parts of the brain when we go to the two-dimensional. We're not using the senses that we have, like smell, for example, and touch when we depend on Facebook. Does that change the nature of what they're communicating and what they understand about each other? Does it change the nature of reality and what that means? It's a very important question. Okay, all right. Yes, please go ahead then. I made a choice. I call myself a technological minimalist. And I'm going to stick with that as long as I can communicate with my three daughters and their offspring the way they, I tell them to. <laughs> um, I know I made that decision. So when I hear yesterday on the news that we have now enrolled our one billionth Facebook customer, I'm unfazed by that because I know that that's going to mean some sacrifices in terms of who and what I have contact with. So I made that decision. So that's something that technology so far can't take away from me. That is my free will to make that and I think that's, a, that's an excellent point and one of the ones that we try to make with our students all the time. Oh, uh, the, well, let's see. All right. So I think that the essence of your comment was that you have fully exercised your own power of choice with regard to these technologies and that there are, you realize that there would be sacrifices that came with it. But I, also what I really liked in what you said, also being a mother, <laughs> is that you just made it clear to the daughters that they might communicate with Facebook, through Facebook with other people, but you had another way of doing it. And it was a desire to maintain your relationship with them that had you doing it, or at least that's the way I heard the motivation. So we, we do have choices, and we can be, as you described yourself, techno-minimalists. Mm -hmm. I want to add that since my children are here, your grandchildren aren't here, I joined Facebook and friended them right away, which is really great because I can see what they're up to. <laughs> Not trying to spy on them, but it really does help me get who they are in that world. And the other thing, my thumbs are... Boy, they're tired. Texting is the way that generation tends to communicate. And there's more flow. So my feeling is, you know, it's not my choice. It's not my medium. As long as we can maintain a sense of real connection when we're together. And we have to work on it because the distraction of the, of the box is really powerful. Today I was at um, the banquet for Festival of the Book. And I was also yesterday morning at, the, at an opening breakfast. And I noticed that a number of people were hiding their black boxes underneath and checking their mail while the speaker was speaking. It's very addictive. It, it's, it's tantalizing. It's very stimulating. It's much easier than direct human communication, so it's easy to go that way. So it doesn't mean that we don't go that way. It means that we have to be conscientious about our entanglements, clear and aware, so we continue to cultivate and nurture some of the fundamental capacities we have to hear and sense and communicate that have nothing to do with our machines. Well, and the, the question had to do with 
the way that people communicated, actually, I'm about the same age. And it was once a week on the phone. Long distance was very expensive. Uh, so you did it on Sunday and you didn't, you didn't talk too long. And certainly Facebook offers a lot more opportunity for connection. Um, and you're thinking that's not necessarily a bad thing, that it might have been desirable. So do you have a response? No, I certainly understand exactly what you're saying. Um, I think it's a different kind of communication, but it is a communication. Mm-hmm. Yes? I'm curious, uh, your thoughts on how faith plays out in this long-term technological evolution the faith is in the technologies. Go ahead. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, the, the question has to do with the role of faith in the future that you are envisioning. Mm-hmm. In that setting. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason why I rem- essentially removed it one reason I essentially removed it is to play with what that would look like and where we would get our sense of meaning and what our relationships would look like if, if our traditional structures of faith were not there, if it had shifted to the intelligent system that gives us extended life. And that's where we... Because people... So when we use the word Vishnu, it's actually not the Hindu god, although I play on that. It's an acronym for the virtual information system for human noetic enhancement and welfare. And so people have put their faith in that because that's what keeps them well. It's what enhances their perceptions. It's what keeps them connected and a sense of security in life. So I just wondered, okay, well, what would life be like if that's where we put our, if that's what became sacred for us? A follow-up question to that. Do you have any sense of the extent to which the people who are living in this world in the time up to when the book starts, did they have any sense of having chosen to abandon faith in the traditional sense? Or or to what extent did they have a sense of having chosen that alternative? Okay, I'm going to have to make this up. hasn't thought about it. But I'm going to guess that what would have happened is, just like what's happening now, incremental shifts over time in our beliefs, in our practices, in our communities, and that eventually you just sort of don't realize you've made a change. Um, there's a movie called The Matrix. It's a science fiction movie. All kinds of symbolism there. But one is that um, we're essentially not any longer conscious of the state of our being. And that to become conscious means to become aware of, of a very painful element of life. And so what I would guess is that we made choices over time, over time, over time, and didn't realize that we were then putting aside our other belief systems. And then, then we're just there. Mm-hmm. It's it would, sort of like an evolution. Right, what it would all add up to in the end. And I think that's one of the things that's characteristic of science fiction generally, is we read about these worlds and we go, nobody would ever choose this. Yeah. Nobody would ever choose it. But as you point out, the, the little, the intermediate choices that came before it add up to it. Yeah. You got that. Okay. So, so the question is that human beings have been 
altering or attempting to alter our world for as long as, as we can know about. And so the question is whether there you see a difference in the scale or the speed of that desire to alter and ability to alter. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, coll colleague, would you like to answer that question? <laughs> I'd be sure. You want me to? Please. Uh, I would say, I mean, I, I think there are two answers to that question. Uh, and, and with regard to communication, I think it, it's particularly pertinent. For as, I mean, if you go all the way back to Plato and Socrates, and, uh, and Socrates is saying, oh, no, written language is much inferior to spoken language. Why would any person think that having a thing written down was superior to actually knowing it? Now, we think of having it written down as being the way to go and this sort of ethereal whatever representation that our students or our children engage in as being, as being inferior. So I think that the sense of change and of gain and of loss has been a constant. I think that the difference now is scale and numbers and the size of systems that we are engaged in. I mean, the long-distance systems that we talked with our parents on when we were in college were much, much smaller than Facebook or than the Internet. And as they get bigger, they get riskier, they get harder to change, more people are involved with them, and the, the opportunity, and I think this is part of what Roz's book deals with, the opportunity and the cost of opting out get much higher. And suppose the systems we're developing become intelligent systems and begin to develop their own autonomy. And that's the stuff of science fiction, but not that far off. We're really right there on the precipice. If we can do it, we have a three-minute ending clip. It may or may not work. I hope so. So let me tell you what you're seeing then. <laughs> this is a replica of Philip K. Dick, science fiction writer, author of Blade Runner. Right? Um, he's on the right. It's a robot. You could see the circuitry behind his head. He's having a conversation with one of his creators. And these creators are um, somebody from a university in, in Texas and uh, a robotics uh, firm. And their goal was to see whether, through the circuitry that was um, programmed to teach itself, whether they could load it up with all of Dick's writings and everything they knew about Dick's beliefs and thoughts and life. If we could hear it, what we would hear is that the, the machine is actually responding in real time as if in a conversation with answers to philosophical questions that were not programmed. They were put together from the data that was in the program. So the appearance is that an actual conversation is happening with Philip K. Dick, who's reaching into his thoughts and his memories and joking and laughing and talking with the researcher. And it's really quite extraordinary. Um, unfortunately, we don't have the sound but the internet's there for all of us. You can find it if you want to. Just search for a Philip K. Dick uh, robot um, 
something like that, you'll find them. Thank you so much for being with us tonight. Thank you.